You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spale. I'd also, I'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters: Evan, Brandon, the Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores and the Snarlin' Sea Dog. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We left off last time in the autumn of 1704, when the English sacked St. Augustine, Florida, but failed to capture Castillo de San Marcos. What had been Governor Moore's grand plan to push the Spanish out of Florida had turned into an underwhelming and deeply expensive flop. Many of Carolina's richest and most influential citizens invested in Governor Moore's attack, and they were hoping to see a return on their investment, preferably in land. But that's not what they got. Instead, they got something else they wanted, the opportunity to fire Governor James Moore. Which might seem a bit odd that a colonial council has the right to fire a royally appointed governor, but remember Carolina was kind of a weird place. It was a proprietorship and had a lot of unique rights and responsibilities in the empire. It was still the king's job, though, to appoint a replacement, and he chose somebody who was a good friend of former Governor Moore, 
Someone who held a lot of the same viewpoints and ideals. Someone with the same priorities. His name was Nathaniel Johnson. Now, Johnson was a recent transplant from the British Leeward Islands. In particular, St. Christopher, known today as St. Kitts, and Nevis. St. Kitts and Nevis were new acquisitions for the English Empire. They had been French, and just a couple of years ago, they were handed over to the English. Johnson had been their first governor, but now here he was in Carolina. Down to the south, in St. Augustine, Governor José de la Cerda convened a council of war. This included the governor of Pensacola, Andrés de Ariola, as well as Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville, the acting French governor at Mobile. The Council of War was to discuss the English problem, and there was really only one answer to that problem. They had to destroy the capital of Carolina, Charlestown. This is Episode 317, The Destruction of Charlestown. Communication was always slow in the age of sale. I don't think I'm going to blow any minds with that nugget, but it took a long time for things to get from place to place. This was an especially serious problem for the more centralized and uh, autocratic monarchies, places like France and Spain. Especially in a time of war, the French and Spanish colonies in the New World had to wait for royal approval before they could do pretty much anything. You know, they could do basic defense, but that's it. If a governor or a commander were to show a bit of initiative and enact a, an offensive on their own, that might be seen as treason, and they might find themselves climbing the gallows. But in English America, things were a lot more loosey-goosey, especially in Rhode Island and Carolina, but a bit in Massachusetts and New York as well. You know, they could do things like raise their own militias and plan offensives and then go do that. If they bungled it and a bunch of people died, they might get an official reprimand. But they're not going to be accused of treason, unless they actually do some treason. Of course, that means that they're not going to get much in the way of royal support. You know, they're kind of on their own. It really freed the colonists up to act when action was needed. And if you're wondering, yeah, the crown just hated this. They would really have loved a lot more authority in the colonies and occasionally tried to impose that authority, but that usually ended poorly. You know, there would be work stoppages and rebellions, that kind of thing. So oftentimes they just let the colonists do what they wanted so long as they paid their taxes. That left a place like Carolina, though, free to do pretty much whatever they wanted to in this war. And what was it exactly that the English in Carolina wanted to do? Why, naturally, they wanted to kill and burn and rape and pillage the whole of northern Florida. They were going to attack the Spanish mission system and the Appalachie. Now... I'm not going to spend much time talking about this expedition. Mostly because I don't want to, because it's just horrible. The whole way through, it's a nightmare. More to the point, though, it really is a sidebar to our story. So, 
The short version goes a little like this. James Moore, the recently deposed governor, was still really the only man with any military experience, so he led a force of well over 1,000 Muscogee Creek and Alabama warriors to burn the city of Pensacola. On the way, they destroyed numerous Appalachian settlements, and then, once Pensacola was gone, they turned and headed east. Between Pensacola and the Atlantic coast of Florida, James Moore left a wake of devastation and destruction unlike anything seen this side of the Mississippi in history. This took up essentially the entire year of 1705. Now, the French and Spanish tried to respond, but they were always one step behind the English. Mostly because the English-led Creek and Alabama warriors were free to move whenever and wherever they needed to. The Spanish and French were hamstrung by the need to wait for orders from back home. They could defend themselves when attacked, but you know, to deploy a force to go out and hunt down the English was a problem. Now, it's not like they weren't trying to get those orders. They were actively, fiercely trying to get those orders. The governor of French Louisiana, de Iberville, he was in Paris at this point, informing the king of the English depredations. But he was also pitching his plan to destroy Charlestown. Now, King Louis was perfectly happy with this plan and gave his permission to go ahead, but then the Iberville fell seriously ill. It looked for a while there like he might die, so he was unable to go about getting things started. While he was in his sickbed, a couple of other plans were kicked around. There was one suggesting that they could capture Barbados, another that said maybe they could just go take Jamaica. And both of these plans included recruiting basically all of the French privateers and freebooters and buccaneers that were in the West Indies. They wanted to get everyone, if they could, so word was sent to all of the French outposts in the West Indies, places like Tortuga and Martinique, of course Biloxi, informing all of the sailors there that they were looking for privateers. If you had any interest in sailing out to attack the English and walking away with a bunch of plunder, then meet up on this place at this day. But all of those plans fell through because de Iberville took so long to get better. And really, for anything they were going to do in the West Indies, he was the linchpin to that plan. Not just because of his skill in commanding a fleet, although that was part of it, he was an experienced privateer commander from his time up in Canada, but also because he was going to have a whole fleet of Royal Navy ships under his command. Twelve ships of the line in two separate squadrons. The first would be under his direct command, while the second squadron would be under a Henri-Louis de Chavagnac. Chavagnac was able to do a lot of the actual work of getting the fleet ready to sail, but it wasn't until January of 1706 that Iberville was well enough to climb on board and head back to the Americas. By this point, the plan, which had undergone several revisions, was to meet with a Spanish armada in Havana, and then they would sail on to take Charlestown in Carolina. Once Charlestown had fallen, 
the Spanish would occupy and claim that territory as part of Spanish Florida. That would serve as sort of a base for their French allies who would continue on north to Chesapeake Bay. They would take Jamestown there and hopefully push the English out of Virginia, which they would claim for France. It was a bold plan, very ambitious, but they had the manpower, maybe, to succeed. During the Atlantic crossing, the two squadrons were separated by a storm. The Iberville spent several days looking for the other squadron and was unable to find them. As a result, though, just thanks to the way the winds played out, Chavagnac arrived at Martinique almost a full month before d'Iberville did. And he found, when he arrived, that all of those French buccaneers who had been primed to do a bit of state-sanctioned raiding were all there, at Martinique, waiting for him. Now, I may be misreading things here, but I don't think they expected all these ships to be there, waiting for them. I think the plan was to stop at Martinique, which is where every French ship stopped when they arrived in the West Indies. It's just where you land. Then they would have headed on to Saint-Domingue, Havana, maybe pop on over to Tortuga, over to St. Augustine, and then up to Carolina. At each one of those stops, minus Havana, you could pick up some privateers and build yourself a nice little fleet. But here they were, everybody knowing they were going to land in Martinique, because that's just what happened, and they were all waiting for the fleet to arrive so they could go raid and pillage. And it was way more than anyone expected, including a few names we know, probably. I don't know if Lauro de Graff and his ilk were here by this point. They may have been retired, living in Biloxi, and, you know, sort of a cultural leader for a lot of these people, but not actively privateering. However, I like to imagine that this is where Olivier Levasseur signed up on board a privateer. I mean, everyone else was doing it, so why not me? There's also a very good chance, bordering on a certainty here, that at least one ship among these dozens of small pirate craft flew the Jolly Roger. And I'm talking about a real Jolly Roger, an honest-to-God skull and bones here. This would have been the ship of a French pirate named Emmanuel Wynne. Captain Wynne operated out of Tortuga, primarily, but also Nassau, and he raided merchantmen from the Indian Ocean to the Windward Passage, as well as the coast of Carolina. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the life of Captain Wynne. Aside from a few ships that we're pretty sure he captured, our really only one solid piece of evidence about Captain Wynne comes from 1700. He'd been operating off of the west coast of Africa, when he was spotted by a Captain Cranby of HMS Poole. Captain Cranby chased him all the way to the Cape Verde Islands, where Captain Wynne managed to hide out and get himself into a location that it would have been impossible for HMS Poole to follow. It's worth mentioning that here in 1700, off the coast of Africa, there's actually a pretty major anti-piracy campaign going on, which we'll get to. But here, where Captain Cranby had Captain Wynne trapped. He described Captain Wynne's standard, quote, 
a sable ensign with crossbones, a death's head, and an hourglass. End quote. In the language of medieval British heraldry, sable means black. So that's a black flag with crossed bones, a skull, and an hourglass. In the language of pirate vexology, that means that your time is running out. This Jolly Roger is our very first reliable description of the Jolly Roger. Captain Cranby was a real guy. We know about his Royal Navy career, we know where he lived, we know about his wife, and none of it's very exciting, but he's a real person, and in 1701 he gave this account to the Admiralty. And it's almost certain that Captain Wynne was in the West Indies in 1704, and if he was, he would certainly have sailed with this French fleet. But with so many privateers, and that's the word I'm choosing to use, but make no mistake, these ships did not have letters of mark. They were acting here on behalf of the Crown, but, you know, two weeks earlier, they'd been freebooters. But what do you do with all of these sailors who are eager to get about their business? You don't want to lose them, and if you make them sit in port too long, you will, and you certainly don't want to turn them against you. So Shavagnak made a decision. Under his direct command, he had four men of war and two frigates. Those were the Royal Navy ships. But he also had 24 privateer vessels. They were all smaller, but that's a substantial amount of manpower. Nearly a thousand privateers and pirates. Shavagnak had them sail for Nevis. But on the way there, contrary winds kept them from reaching their destination. So they kind of took a detour and headed on over to St. Kitts. There, Admiral Chavagnac set the privateers loose. They ransacked several towns and plantations. For about a week, they ravaged St. Kitts. They spotted some English reinforcements from Barbados heading their way and departed quickly. But everyone had made a good bit of money and they'd done a good bit of damage to the English. Now, none of this was part of the plan. This was just Chavagnac finding something to do with all of these privateers. When de Iberville arrived at Martinique, he found Chavagnac waiting for him and even more buccaneers. What had been nearly a thousand in twenty-four ships had turned into well over a thousand in as many as thirty-six or even thirty-eight ships. And he would have loved to take them at that moment and head on over to Havana and then do the whole thing they planned on doing, but... The privateers were antsy. They wanted a little plunder in their pockets, right? And it could be bad for your health to anger more than a thousand filibusters. So Deberville and Chavagnac sat down, had a conversation, and realized that, well, they'd hit St. Kitts, but St. Kitts was relatively poor. Nevis, on the other hand, just to the south, was filled with riches. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Between them, the Iberville and Chavagnac had eight man-of-war, that is, you know, fourth- and fifth-rate ships of the line, as well as four frigates and 38 privateer vessels, which is an amazing fleet. And I want you to just, you know, take a second here and put yourself in the shoes of an English decision-maker in a place like Jamaica or Charleston or the Bahamas. Your empire has been spending the last decade assiduously chasing and fighting and hanging every Englishman who even smelled like a privateer. Ever since Henry Every, almost exactly ten years past, England had been keeping her hands clean and spending a huge amount of money and manpower hunting down pirates. This was thanks to a massive amount of international pressure, but now... Here are the French, amassing what was probably the largest fleet that the West Indies had seen since uh, Henry Morgan, probably. But this massive force that was made up mostly of privateers and pirates. And you, an English colonial administrator, you know these privateers and pirates. For the past several years, they'd been raiding your ships, they'd been sacking your plantations, and many of them were flying not the flag of France, but a black flag with a skull and crossbones. But now, here they are, with the king's royal authority following the most Christian king's fleur-de-lis into battle. This seemed like rank hypocrisy, and it seemed like it would be a good time for you and your empire to fight fire with fire. Maybe it was time to stop hunting pirates and to start employing them. This amazing French fleet, this largest fleet in the West Indies since 1671, they set sail from Martinique at the end of March, 1706, and they arrived at Nevis on the 1st of April, Good Friday. D'Iberville sent two of his frigates ahead of the fleet, along with twenty of the smaller privateer craft. They sailed up toward the north end of the island, where the defenses weren't nearly as strong. It's the sort of place that 
most privateer fleets would land a force if they were attacking the island. And this was not an insubstantial force. There was about 400 men landing up in the north. They might just, you know, take the island on their own, and if so, great, but that really wasn't why he sent them up there. He sent that force up to the north of Nevis because he knew that the defenders would send their militia up to defend against them. And that's exactly what happened. A force of about 600 Englishmen, including, you know, mostly militiamen, but a few regulars, they marched off to crush those impetuous French pirates who had just desecrated St. Kitts. But of course that left the south of the island, where the capital of Nevis, a place called Charlestown, was almost completely undefended. And then, Chavagnac and Aberville, leading a Royal Navy fleet of France, along with about 20 other privateer ships, they made landing in a place called Green Bay, very near Charlestown. When they arrived at the capital, they found a force of about 200 men there to counter them. And these were all local militia, and not the best of the best. All of those British regulars that had marched up to the north, they were there to lead the force and to, you know, give them a little backbone. These were the last, the dregs of their militia, and they were just brushed aside by the French. By noon of that day, the island of Nevis had surrendered. The following few weeks were terrible for Nevis. Armed bands of French privateers and pirates marched throughout the island. They headed from plantation to plantation and took anything they could find. You know, silver and rum if they had it, but mostly what they took was people. Every enslaved person on Nevis, which was somewhere around 3,000 men, women, and children, were claimed by the French. But then, once everything of value had been stripped of a plantation, the French burned it. And then they moved on to the next and did the same thing again, and again, and again. Every buccaneer there, well over a thousand men, remember, they carried away a sack full of plunder and at least one human being. D'Iberville, though, the commander of the expedition, had all of the other human beings, which gave him about 1,500 people chained up on his ships. Eventually, they would be taken to Mobile, and they would become the first enslaved black people in what would one day become Alabama. Nevis, though, was destroyed. There were almost no buildings left properly standing. And then, in about a year's time, they would be hit by a pretty terrible earthquake, and the island really wouldn't recover population or economic power for a couple of decades. But Nevis wasn't the point of the expedition. This was all, you know, a little plunder as a treat for all of those privateers. Right now, over in Havana, there were two dozen Spanish galleons waiting for the French fleet, for D'Iberville and Chavagnac. Together, those two forces were going to sail for English America, and rain down fire and fury on Carolina. And everyone knew that was the plan. 
This wasn't some kind of secret black op from Charleston to Boston. From Kingston to London, every English person in the Empire knew that this was happening. And it's hard to explain just how terrified everyone was. I mean, D'Aberville had turned into some kind of demon. He had this armada of French pirates, bigger than anything anyone had ever seen. He had a fleet of powerful warships, and then, now, another fleet of Spanish galleons. The English had never experienced anything like this, at least not in anyone's living memory, and, you know, a couple of generations before that. They'd produced a few of these people you know, Henry Morgan, Francis Drake, that kind of thing, but they'd never been on this end of it. So now they're all, what, cowering under their beds? Well, kinda, yeah. Some of the more well-off in the colonies left and headed back to England, where they could be pretty sure they wouldn't be killed. But everyone who was left in places like Charleston, Jamestown, Boston, New York, they prepared to defend. They were clearing forests to build palisade walls. They were arming every man they could, even if he could only carry rudimentary weapons, you know, spears and bows. They knew that any day now, a fleet of unimaginable horror might arrive on the horizon, and there was virtually nothing they could do to stop it. These people were sending their herds out into the countryside. They were burying their treasure, hopefully to keep something, if they manage to survive. And then, in July, Pierre Lemoyne de Iberville died. Back in April, after they left Nevis, a smoldering ruin, de Iberville told the buccaneers that they were free to leave if they wanted to. However, he told them about his plans to sail for Carolina to sack Charlestown. And a few ships did leave, but most of them stuck around. They'd been menacing Carolina's coast for years now, and they were happy to raid Charlestown with state backing. So the fleet set sail for Havana. When they arrived, they found that fleet of galleons waiting for them. Everything appeared to be ready. But shortly after they arrived, or maybe right before, I'm not sure, but right about that time, an outbreak of yellow fever hit Havana, and it was a bad one. The buccaneers fled. Thirty-eight ships with well over a thousand men it was like, one moment, they're there, and then the next, poof, a plume of smoke, and they're gone. They'd been pretty nervous in Havana anyway, a ton of these Spanish officers in Havana would have loved to see these French pirates at the end of a rope, or maybe broken at the hands of the Inquisition. They couldn't, thanks to the Alliance, but they wanted to. But as soon as the yellow fever outbreak occurred, they were gone, and they were smart to do so. Because d'Iberville, that July, died very suddenly. I suspect that in that situation, the Spanish might have taken the chance to deal out a little bit of justice to these pirates. But that's a large percentage of their power that was just dispersed into the wind. Those who stayed in Havana did not fare well. A ton of those who were enslaved and trapped on board the French ships, those who had been taken from Martinique, they died in those holds. 
the rest of the French, especially those who came over from Europe who'd never been to the New World, they died in amazing numbers. It was a bad time. By about August, there was this impressive French royal fleet sitting in the harbor in Havana, but hardly anybody left to sail it. What had been a fleet of 3,000 men and more than 50 ships was down to fewer than 600 men, a few Spanish galleons, and like two of the French warships. Now, everyone knew that this was a disaster. Nobody thought that they were in a good situation here. But the plan was already in motion, and it seems like nobody had the power to stop it. The fleet, which had been given over to D'Iberville, well, Chavagnac should have taken command, but though he didn't die, it looks like he took many of the ships and departed. Maybe back to Europe, maybe he was going somewhere that wasn't a yellow fever-stricken Havana, but I don't think he had the manpower to do much with those ships anyway. The French vessels that were left were put under the command of a man named Lefavre. In mid-August, 1706, Lefavre set sail for St. Augustine. There, in Spanish Florida, they would be able to collect more soldiers to really bolster their ranks. You know, things were looking a bit thin on board, but once they reached Florida, everything would be great, right? In Wars of the Americas, author David F. Marley writes, quote, Florida's governor furnishes Lefavre with an additional pair of canoes, a demi-galley, thirty irregular troops, and a few Indian volunteers. Thus enlarged, the expedition set sail again by 31 August. End quote. David Marley also wrote the book Pirates of the Americas, which is great, but in the same vein, it's kind of a bare-bones accounting of events, not really much in the way of commentary or storytelling. But even still, in that passage, you can just feel the sarcasm dripping through the page. Because that's nothing. When he says 30 Spanish irregulars, he's talking about farmers. With bad guns. Now, in their defense, James Moore was still roving about up north, causing all kinds of problems. His active campaigning seems to have ended, but he was still fencing with the Spanish over territory. And for the record, what Moore is doing here is basically establishing what would become Georgia in a few years' time. But thanks to all of that fighting, there really wasn't anyone in St. Augustine to send on to Charleston. So, the Franco-Spanish fleet, thus enlarged, departed St. Augustine on the 31st of August. It was maybe two days later that they encountered a pair of privateers. The most powerful ship in the Franco-Spanish fleet, the 72-gun Brillante, was carrying the land commander of their forces and 200 of their best soldiers, these were the most important fighting men that the Franco-Spanish had. But the Brillante peeled off to engage those privateers. And then they split up. One of those ships, the uh, Flying Horse, under a Captain Peter Stuhl, headed off north. The other privateer, Flying Dutch Colors, circled back and engaged the Brillante. 
Now, it's not like this Dutch ship, which was just a sloop, I think, could have really done anything to a warship like that, but it did make them stop. And then, when the Dutch ship headed off, the English ship, the flying horse, was already too far away to chase down, so really the only option was to chase down that Dutch ship, which is what they did. Further and further and further out to sea until it was well out of sight of the rest of the Franco-Spanish fleet. I kind of picture the rest of the fleet standing back, watching what's happening through their spyglasses and being like, what the hell? Where are they going? We need them. And they just left. Our force of 600 men with, let's not forget, 30-year regulars and a few Indian volunteers, well, now they were cut down to 400 men, and they were their 400 least trained, worst soldiers, right? Remember how I told you that everyone in the English Americas was furiously preparing for war? They were terrified of the depredations that were going to befall them. Well, Carolina was first on the dinner menu, and they knew they were first on the dinner menu, so they were preparing harder than most. They'd built new gun batteries, and they had every man in the colony armed with a musket and a pike. They had practiced plans to defend from any potential approach. You know, they had signals that, if you heard it, you were to go to this one location, a mustering point, where you could then be deployed to defend anywhere necessary. Because they were terrified out of their wits, D'Iberville was coming with the largest fleet and the largest force anywhere in this hemisphere. He was the Antichrist of the Atlantic, and they were ready to defend their homes to a man. And what appears is not that. They, they even knew that that wasn't what was coming. They got advance warning from that English privateer, the Flying Horse, who stopped in Charlestown and told them, hey, the Franco-Spanish force is coming. They'll be here in a couple of days, and guys, I gotta tell you, it's not as bad as they were saying. On 7 September 1706, and that's the uh, Gregorian calendar, the English calendar here, the commander of the Charlestown militia spotted smoke signals coming from, well, today it's called Sullivan's Island, but it's named after a Revolutionary War commander. At the time, it was just that island over there that has the best line of sight to the approaches. And when they spotted the Franco-Spanish fleet coming into view, they sent up smoke signals. The commander of the militia force, a man named Lieutenant Colonel William Rett, fired off the alarm guns, and all of the men who had been preparing to defend against the devil, well, they deployed to their particular rallying points. About a third of them he ordered to stay in Charlestown and defend the city proper. Another third he sent over to that island that would become Sullivan Island, and the other third he sent to James Island to the south. In the meantime, a messenger from the Franco-Spanish fleet sent word, a message to the governor there in Charlestown, ordering them to surrender, or they would be, you know, crushed and burned under the weight of Almighty God, that sort of thing, to which the governor laughed and didn't respond. Because they knew that the Spanish and the French had no chance. I mean, look at what they've got out there. Maybe over the horizon there's, you know, 
three times that many men and ships that are going to come out of the blue and surprise us, but if that doesn't happen, there's no way they can win. Now, we've actually got pretty excellent play-by-play descriptions of this defense. Lieutenant Colonel Rhett, you know, tells you when he deploys his men to cross rivers, where he orders them to reload. It's very intricate, very detailed, and fairly interesting if you have a passion for early modern warfare in the colonies. But if you don't, there's nothing interesting here, because they just march through, and the Spanish and French, who are crazy outnumbered, run away. In some cases, the Spanish and French don't even fire at the English, because they knew the score here, they knew that they had no chance of taking Charlestown. It seems to me that they had pressure from higher powers, you know, maybe the Viceroy over in Mexico City to, you know, get on with the invasion plan. Lefavre dutifully sent along that message, ordering the heathens to surrender under the weight of his most Catholic majesty, blah, 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 but he knows they're not going to surrender. So they show up, they make landfall, they send the message, and when the defenders arrive, they leave. I don't think the English forces of Charlestown suffered a single casualty. And, you know, I named today's episode... The destruction of Charlestown, and I wasn't lying to you. The capital city of Nevis was destroyed, and that was also called Charlestown. If I led you to believe something that was implied but never stated, well, that's still not a lie. Because Charlestown and Carolina were safe. Next time, we're going to move back east and talk about some actual pirates doing actual piracy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who leaves us ratings or reviews, and everyone who recommends this show, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the History of China, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, or Bandcamp. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
once more the old captain has died let him live on in legend tonight